This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. Welcome back to Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, we salute a visual artist known for her hand-cut, wall-mounted paper forms and immersive site-specific sculptures. Her colorful work exudes wonder and whimsy while being constructed from humble, everyday materials. She explains how she uses repurposed chicken wire and children's birthday party tablecloths to produce some of her most explosive works. She tells us what it means to be an art generator and reveals that she has a tattoo of an X-Acto knife. Stick around for my artsy conversation with the multi-dimensional wonder worker, Crystal Wagner. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, la, la. Hello, a wonder worker. I love that. You like Wonder Worker? Oh, I love that. I mean, like a part of my whole approach to making work is about world building and wonder is a part of that. If imagination was manifested into physical forms around us, that would be wonder. Well, maybe you can describe your visualization process and how it presents itself. Because uh, first of all, let me just tell the listener, you've got to go to Crystal Wagner's website and get an eyeful. So you know what we're talking about today <laughs> or artist uh, Crystal Wagner on Instagram and you will just be bowled over. But I'd have you describe your visualization because I can't imagine how it presents itself to you. Right. Well, I think that that's one of the, the things that I deal with a lot is when first when people kind of ask me, oh, what kind of art do you make? And the idea of having a synopsis of that in one sentence is ridiculous because like it is in a sense world building and it's tapping into intuitive movement. So to summarize, what does that look like? Imagine an organic form or structure moving through space as if it's growing, but with an artificial vibrant color boost that reminds us of flowers, flora that may be more reminiscent of things found in tropical locations and not necessarily in our backyard, but these kind of things growing through space. So what I'm doing with my work is taking this approach, which is a hybrid between organic and manufactured materials to grow things through environments. I mean, I can't help but be lost this idea that we're losing a sense of our peripheral experience and our relationship with the outside world because of our technologically driven sense of focus. So my world right now is, hey, I'm looking at my phone and my peripheral vision is coming into this small space. So our relationship with forms and structures outside of that is starting to atrophy. So my body to the body of a tree or a rock formation or a natural structure, like that relationship is starting to atrophy. With the large scale works that I'm doing, I'm reactivating that and waking people up to immersive body relationship experiences with organic forms and structures. I know that you said your work goal is to awaken the senses. Yeah. And I love that. You cannot go unnoticed. If somebody walks up to your exhibit, mm -hmm. it's a waterfall of color and it's very exciting. And it's also the whimsy has got a big question mark. Like, how does this work? How does this staying up there? What's holding this color? It's almost like taking a snapshot of a waterfall that you know is flowing. Yeah. I'm fascinated by it. And what you did describe was the way you're work looks visually and tried to do it with words. I think Edward Hopper was the one that suggested that if he could say it with words, there would be no reason for him to paint it. Absolutely. What I'm really curious about is how does it appear in your head? A lot of the kind of questions that I get moving into a space before I start building is, okay, well, what's your plan? And 
I wish that I could say like I have a full plan, but the reality is that I don't. Like I work intuitively. I respond to the architecture and the environment in the same way that a rhizome moves through space. Like I am growing the pieces. And because I am immersed in an experience that's very human centric, I do have access to design work and color and there are relationships between objects that I'm focusing on. One of the things that I'm doing is thinking about my experience outside. So I spend a lot of time backpacking, looking closely at things. When I go into a space to grow something, I am reminded of how I felt when I encountered a rock that was squished into a plant that was like had a root climbing over it. And I think a really good way to think about the growth is a rhizome. So the root system, the way that it moves through space. So I don't have a plan. I show up and I grow through space. The design work on the surface is very reminiscent. I think of Art Nouveau, Art Deco, like bringing that kind of like uh, architecturally natural movement onto the surface. But I want something to feel like it has life beyond. I love the description of it being like a root system. Yeah. Because it is trying to find itself to water. It is. The idea of tropism is that it moves towards something. When like heliotropism is it's moving towards sunlight. When I enter a space, and the thing that I think is fascinating about our interior spaces is that we live in these rectangles and these squares and these flat walls and... There's nothing about my experience in the box that reminds me of my relationship to the natural landscape. And I think that's why we're really intrigued by architects like Gaudi. Like we want to see those organic forms, like because our bodies have a relationship with that. So as we start getting more and more plastic and more and more smooth, we start losing a sense of what it means to be a physical object moving through space surrounded by things that grow. It's hard because like I did an installation one time in Hawaii. And this is funny because so I'm growing this form in Hawaii as I'm like I gave a talk while I was on the island. And I was talking about this idea of us being disconnected from the natural landscape. And I just looked at them and I was like, well, you guys aren't <laughs> because they right. they're immersed in it, you know, but like our disconnect from that natural landscape is something that is constantly a part of my internal dialogue. When I go into an environment, I want to emulate what it feels like to stand in front of a giant sequoia tree and feel so small and it awakens a sense in people. And I think that that's what I want, I want people to be inspired, to look around, to feel the wonder of the world that we're a part of, mostly so that they become custodians to the world that we live in. And also as an advocate myself for repurpose and reimagine, anything I can do to remind people, like, don't forget about the breathing, moving landscape outside of our urban environments. The interior installations are made with repurposed, reused birthday party tablecloth. I read that. <laughs> so there's something very textural about it, but this is plastic. So this idea of this single, single use material, and I'm reusing it over and over and over again. So every installation is a new reimagined version of the same exact material. So this single, single use material would have been thrown away nine years ago, but it's traveled all over the world and been made in all of these different environments reacting to the specific architectural and contextual realms. The human living in a box. Jerry Seinfeld, we used to have a comedy routine about and we're put into a crib and then we live in this box that's a house and then we go to the school <laughs> that's a box and eventually at the end we die, they put us in a box and they put us in the ground. It's a quick paraphrase. The nature of it is now add phones and TVs and screens that are boxes and Everything in your life is framed out. It's just getting smaller and smaller, too. Yeah. And I don't mean that to be some kind of a person against technology, but I do mm -hmm. think that what you described about Hawaii, and I know that environment, is they can't help but have a volcano flow happen 
and change what's happening around them. They have to be attentive to that, or they have a tropical forest area. And so their life depends on that produce and all of those things that they have to keep those fields alive. If it's sugarcane, if it's pineapples, all of that becomes a part of the sustaining life. So I'm coming at it from a very visual and sensory focused environment. So like what the shapes and textures of that environment feel like to me. In Hawaii, there's a lot of shape, texture, and color. And each environment on the planet, it's so funny because I don't ever want to come off as like, oh, I'm a tree hugger and I'm kind of losing myself in this realm of this language that maybe makes people dismiss me. But the reality is, is that like our relationship with the natural world has changed so dramatically that we don't understand it anymore. I have the outdoor pieces, which I call lithotropes. And those are the ones that grow on the outside of buildings. The idea of the natural forms coming into an environment and living off of this architecture. I mean, I did an installation on the outside of a castle two years ago. I saw those pictures. It's really great. I'm on location. And one of the things we talked about a little bit, like the idea of the plan, like When you get on location as a site-specific artist and your substrate is a castle and you have to climb the spiral staircase every day to the roof to build it. I mean, like there are so many wonderful things about that. Like one, I'm not tapped into technology at all. I'm on the roof. I'm building with my hands. I'm using my mind to solve problems that are a part of that immediate context. For example, I wasn't able to use an articulating boom lift, which is something that I have used in the past for large-scale projects, so heavy machinery. I have to use like a pulley and archaic like technology just to get this massive form onto the outside of the castle. But there's something about that in being the daughter of a builder. I grew up watching my dad build houses by himself with maybe one or two people. And the idea that we are capable as human beings of doing remarkable things with our hands and our minds, that's what I'm trying to share with the world. And any children that I've met that are big fans of my work, I'm always like, you can do whatever you want. Like you can do this and use your imagination. And in that, it kind of becomes this ongoing process for me with building on the outside of castles or wherever I'm at. Like, what's this environment? How do I navigate it? And how can my imagination and creativity help me solve the contextual parameters of the piece? It's crazy. I mean, like, maybe it's the fact that there's so much wind on the roof of the castle that we have to, like, put a bunch of sandbags down everywhere. And there's just pouring down rain and there's not enough time to stop working. So you're weaving the structure in the rain. And there are a bunch of volunteers from the village that are singing in French old folk songs while I'm building. Oh, that's amazing. And it's like, I love that. Every environment that a piece grows, it has this relationship with the community that it grows in. It kind of becomes its own memory for me. And because they are temporary, they are these events that happen. And to be a part of it and to witness it is something in itself also. And in the creative process, you have the art that's made and lasts forever or long enough to be collected. Or you have the the stuff that is more performative and it happens and then it ends. And the end for me is a part of the poetry of the happening. That's really interesting. And were you influenced by other folks? Like I think of Christo wrapping buildings and bridges yeah. and all those kinds of things. Were- For me, the idea of art just specifically is like, okay, well, anything can be art. There are all these conversations about that and people get in these philosophical existential crises about it. But for me, it's like art is anything that's done with the intention to be viewed as art. Which means that if an artist walks into a room and puts a pen on a table and says, I want you to view this as art, that the conversation that revolves around that pen, no matter what happened to make that moment, because the artist wanted it to be viewed as art, like that, okay, so that's the conversation we're going to have. This pen is art to this artist. 
So Christo, taking it another step further, look at the form of this building. Look what happens when we have the ability to focus on this one moment. I mean, that is, it's like a, a giant highlighter that we get to take to these different things in the world and say, let's look at this closer. And curiosity is the one thing that suspends judgment. So we get to focus in on whatever that specific moment is that the artist is pointing to and be curious about it. And I think that that's like a part of the large scale works, even the small stuff that I'm doing in my studio now, I can't help myself. I'm curious. Like I, I want to explore this crazy world and I want to make things I've been dreaming about. I don't dream in the sense that it's like, oh, I see this, I'm going to do it. It's more like, yeah, maybe I'll put an installation in space. Among other things, you, you're a visionary in terms of communicating to others what's possible. You don't have any fear of having no plan and approaching. I think space is your canvas. Subsequently, you have to be there to activate yourself. Exactly. Yeah. And But you're mindful of keeping the environment and the community and the viewer in mind for that experience of that event. I really, really appreciated when you said it's a part of the poetry and you know it's going to come to a close. I used to do drawings on Etch-a-Sketches that were fairly elaborate <laughs> yeah. because nice. it would panic people. That they would pick it up and they would go, do you mind? And I had to be okay with them shaking it up and then drawing a square because that's what was moving them at the moment. Yeah. But, I mean, I spent time drawing the Mona Lisa on an Etch-a-Sketch and I left <laughs> it on my coffee table and people freaked out about it. Yeah, that's the anxiety, uh, the anxiety of that temporary moment. I think it makes it more like the treasure of like rarity or passing things. We have right now with our technology, the abil ability to hold on to things through documentation. But the binary version of our experience in the world will never, ever feel as full as the actual physical experience. So... In that passing space, it's like, well, what do we do to activate people, to remind them to be fully human outside of the technological landscape? Well, okay, so we get them to move through an environment that they have to actually move their head so they don't hit it. They don't use their fingers to navigate anything, but they're actually like, yeah, exploring things using their bodies in that way. And the temporary nature of that says anything in nature, that there is a time where it comes to an end and something else happens to it. Like the cycle of life is, is there. I think that the sad part for people is, I can't believe you put all of this work into the installations knowing that they're going to come down. So just to give you an idea of the labor. So when I did the installation for Viacom in Times Square, it was a 200-foot installation, and a part of that experience was really interesting because Viacom brought me in not just to do a 200-foot installation in their lobby in Times Square, which is its own kind of experience, <laughs> but also to meet with the presidents of each network, Nickelodeon, Spike TV, and talk about creativity as a catalyst for innovation. What happens when we start thinking about the mind and creativity as a tool for movement forward? So we get stuck in these places where we're regurgitating, and I am an advocate of generators. So to be a generator, you have to start using creativity and moving forward with your own intuitive motion. I think too often people forget about listening to their internal dialogue. None of the work that I've made in my career would have been possible if I listened to other people say, what are you doing? Like, I just did it. I jumped. Somebody said, hey, do you think you can put this on the outside of the building? I hadn't figured out the materials. I still was experimenting with internal interior structures. And I said, yes, I can do it. You don't seem to me to be a person that waits for permission to create. No, <laughs> there's a compulsion. I had somebody one time ask me, like, how do you how do you keep making it? My response was that it's not about going to work and doing the work. It's about beating the compulsion to make the work. Like I'm compelled to make the work. The work leads to the next work, which leads to the next work. And it's a conversation that I'm having with myself, with the world around me. 
I realized that not everybody's experience is the same, but the thing that's wonderful about creative people in any industry is that they get to bring the way that they experience the world, the things that they find important forward and say, hey, like, have you thought about it in this way? And that conversation that can be generated through that can awaken things in people that they forgot, that they haven't thought about, they haven't given themselves permission to think about. And hell yeah, I'm whimsical. And I will bring whimsy into any environment. <laughs> There's something about the seriousness. I remember when I was in grad school, it's like this, this seriousness. My MFA exhibition was like very philosophically driven fabrication. Like it had this heavy statement and I wasn't doing any of the installation work then. So I just kept exploring and kept growing. And it's a part of the work is very much me just expressed outwardly. I am very joyful and expressive and I want to explore things and yeah, like feed that compulsion. Don't work because you have to work. You work because you're compelled to work. I'm compelled to make work every day. It's like an itch I'm trying to scratch in my head. The head and the heart are an interesting combination here because you're one part philosopher, one part maker. And mm -hmm. it sounds like your dad was a maker in terms of his construction. Right. And so you saw making as a way of life. For the listener who may not know this, what does it mean to be a maker to you? One of the things that that brings me back to is this idea, again, of the replicator versus the generator. So there's somebody that can sit down and replicate technically, play a song perfectly, sounds exactly like the original. And then there's someone that can sit down in a room and just make. And even if they were influenced throughout their life, there's a significant moment where you shift over into yourself and you start listening more to yourself. And I think that for making, to be a maker, that you are so focused on your internal dialogue that the things that come out of you are manifested, like ideas that you have or experiences you have. It's very much self-exploration. I'm a maker by making objects, but I think that more than anything, it is about me focusing on my own language and vernacular visually. Where that comes from is my life. And every single human being lives an entire life that's very specific to them, even if it's in the nuance of walking left instead of right, whatever that minute moment is that determines how they move through the world, that's worth sharing. Isn't it that moment of choice when you feel the most alive? Yes, absolutely. Sometimes it happens organically. I think of your workflow and I think it's actual flow. Like it's you're flowing, the art's flowing because I saw on Instagram your 2D drawing of something right. with lines and curves and just, it, I don't consider it willy nilly, but it feels like you're the conduit of something that's coming through you. It's so funny. Oh, I wish I could remember what I was listening to at some point. Maybe it was like Foucault and Bart's on authorial intent. But the idea of where the imagery comes from. So you go through education trying to learn as much as you can so that you can be as free as you can. But while you're going through that system, you end up hitting all of these walls that slowly start to confine you. You lose a sense of the intuition. And I believe that intuition is our primordial mind reaching into the present. If I can't reach it because education has given me all of these new parameters, it's like we're stuck in this situation where it's like, okay, well, I need this information in order to understand how my intuition works in the modern landscape or like in the current times. So I needed all of that, but then I needed a moment that was like, okay, let it, let it go. Like, I don't want anything to do with any of this. I just want to follow my curiosity. But you're glad you had it. I'm so glad. This is me as a parent. I'm with you on that, on writing, on music, on all kinds of things, performance things, visual art, yeah. that you do have to take off the shackles and handcuffs of what you've learned, and you have to walk a tightrope. At that point, it's all whatever internally you do to maintain your focus and your balance and to cross the gorge. It is crazy, too, because I think that like in philosophy, it's the moment where you close the book and you put it down. And then you start moving 
by yourself. And it's like, you need those books. You need that context. Like for me, I needed to understand the historic path that art has gone through from being something that was very much about telling stories or recording history to something that was about ideas to something where we are now, which I think is so remarkable with art when it is so free that it can be so much about the philosophy involved in making. And I do think that artists are philosophers in that sense. You have to be able to have ideas and make things simultaneously. Otherwise, you're just a philosopher. But when you start bringing in the idea of making and thinking, like that's where the art happens. And it is a really good free space for people to share ideas that in other ways wouldn't be permissible or even allowed. So I'm there. I'm growing things on buildings. I think that's so cool. So allow me, if this analogy applies ground school for jumping out of an airplane. You have to know how to pull the chute and what to do. Yeah. Once you jump out of the plane, that moment when you're in free fall, that's you in flow. I know that from playwriting and from stand-up comedy that there there are moments that writing on the pad is not the same as facing the audience. Absolutely. And finding out, oh, they don't really like this idea. This isn't funny to them. Yeah. And now we just have to change. It's When I think about a river, it determines where it's going to go. If something's in the way, it goes to the left or it goes to the right. And so sometimes that analogy to flow allows me to understand this is where it's meant to be. Yeah. A hot air balloon only goes where the wind takes it. You can want to go the other way, but you don't have any choice. So I do think that the freer in discovering yourself, the freer you can be, the more you discover. The, The very things you talked about, about curiosity and discovery, lean into it and then don't force it. Just let it open the next door and let it open the window and then let it come through there. It's so crazy because I think that it's trust. You have to trust that what you have to say is important enough to commit to, that the life that you see or the work that you see or the things that you write, that it's worth putting down and you commit to it 100%. When I was in academia, I was a professor for five years and I knew that I wanted to teach, but I didn't want to teach in the way that was very literal that way. I didn't want to be in the classroom. I wanted to teach through my like practice as an example to you know what it means to follow your dreams. I had two small children and I resigned from academia. I left my tenure track job. I jumped. Yeah. I jumped because I believed in the work and I believed that If you're going to do something, and I tell my children this too, they're 11 and 13 now, but you're going to do something that you love harder with more conviction, more passion, and better than something that you kind of are okay with. So find that thing that you love and follow through with that because that's where your life will be the most realized. And it's hard because a lot of people are struggling. I know COVID was really challenging It was challenging for my practice too. I mean, all of my large scale projects went on pause for two and a half years. I was just in the studio making smaller paper sculptures. So there was a shift in my own kind of like approach to the way that my relationship with the audience changed. And yeah, I got a small dog. You got a small dog? (laughs) Yeah, I got a small dog because I was like in the studio all day, every day by myself. (laughs) But there is a part of our relationship to the audience that is like when you were talking about like the freedom. So, okay, well, there there's freedom in flow. But as a professional artist, I do have a relationship to the audience while they are completely receptive to the things that I'm making. Like I can tell the difference because I'm watching people through technology. I can tell the difference from one mark's success to the next. And that's the really tricky thing about being like a full-time artist, having your work scrutinized and then received. And you have to kind of separate yourself. So it's not anymore for me about being free from my education parameters, but it's making sure that my relationship to the work is still the most authentic that it can be with the relationship to the audience as well. Well, is there any danger in seeing that a certain kind of work, I know you do paper sculptures that are in boxes that sell well, 
to want to spend all of your time in the commerce part of the business? The thing that keeps me awake in that moment is that even the more commercial work that's smaller, it's like creating a song and I get caught up in it and I'm so interested in how it's going to mature because the pieces, even the smaller paper sculptures are intuitive. I can find fulfillment there, but the second that they are no longer fulfilling to me, I would stop doing them because I think I need to be activated in order for the work to remain my work. Otherwise, I'm just replicating and I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to generate. This particular kind of work at the moment may be a chapter in your biography. It may be something that- Exactly. A moment in time. Yeah. And and I was fascinated by seeing the paper coil work where you're rolling Mm -hmm. colorful paper tubes. What I guess I'm curious about is when you go from a 2D drawing, wanting to realize it in a 3D fashion and have it explode from the box, how are you making that decision uh, on paper or you're just taking that blueprint and you're beginning to build it out and deciding, oh, this is the furthest level back and the layers are coming this way? Because it's pretty fascinating. I want to say that there's a blueprint, but there's not. The drawings themselves are not done as mock-ups for the large-scale work. The drawings are done as an exercise for me to understand my vocabulary. When I do the drawings, I have a sense of what it looks like when I make intuitive moves. And it doesn't matter what scale it is, what material it is. My language, my the vocabulary that I use, it's very focused. And while it may pull things in as it grows and evolves, there's still something about tension and organic, like a curve versus a straight line, and what that moment looks like in organic structures. So the architecture of form is something that it's a part of the way that I see, it's a part of the way that I think. When I do the gesture drawing on my, like, for example, on social media, it's a 10 minute gesture drawing with a marker. I never erase. I just want to move forward because in that moment, I'm the most honest with the way that I see and the way that I communicate through form and shape. Do you do that in silence or do you have music on or is there any kind of audio stimulation for you? Well, it's so funny because more often than not, there are podcasts Like this one, we like to say. Like this one. I'm really (laughs) interested in philosophy. And I think that a part of the way that my mind is moving when it comes to making the shapes, it's like the less I analyze it, the better. It really is just a response. So the bones of the work are the first like six lines. In six lines, I know it's going to turn into something. And that's just one, two, three, you know, so the way that I'm moving and that very much to me feels like music because it's balancing itself out. And the way that it becomes dimensional is just through my curiosity. Well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And that same kind of execution happens when I'm working large scale, when I'm thinking about the outside of a building or the inside of a building. And the paper sculptures too. So I screen print all the paper. So I just start with white paper. I screen print all the paper and then I hand cut every single petal. Everyone always asks me why I don't have things laser cut or why I'm not using a tool. And it's like, well, because I don't know what I need right now. I don't know what the next mark is going to be until I'm making it. I have to be very present with the work when I'm moving through it and every execution I I feel like if I walked into a room filled with furniture and someone said, make one of your art pieces, all I would have to do is organize the furniture in a way that made sense to me. And that would be one of my art pieces. It's the way that we see and organize the world around us that is an expression of who we are artistically. And you talk about hand cutting all of that. What is the power and necessity of the X-Acto knife in your work? Well, I have a tattoo of an exacto blade on my hand. Oh my gosh. So that, that speaks to how critical it is to your work. Yeah. I mean, if you could be the Wolverine where every one of your fingers had an exacto knife coming out, you'd be in 50 more galleries. I know. 
it's very time consuming, the work. So when I did the Times Square project, that installation is like 16 to 18 hours a day for two weeks straight. My last day on location in Times Square was 23 hours. When you're working manually like that, and you're working in Times Square where the light doesn't ever go out, it literally just changed from blue to purple. And the only reference that I had for time was when Elmo would take off his head to drink beer. <laughs> You're talking about the costume characters that are walking the street. Yeah, so that like that was my reference for time, but when you're in flow and you're making the work and there are these time restrictions, it's really fascinating how quickly you make decisions. So if I'm making a 200 foot installation and I need to delegate like a form that's going to be all one color. So I'll have a, an assistant, you know, 150 feet away from me. I need to know how that color bounces off of the shape that I have over here. For me, it's very much like melody moving through a form. And I have to understand the gestalt and the detail simultaneously and very quickly. So I have to move fast. And that's why the exercises and markers are really important to me. Every single thing that I'm doing, it's about trusting my instinct, trusting my intuition, making sure that I trust it, I commit to it, and I move forward because I don't have time to labor over the decision. I have to make it a move. It's interesting because trust is a big, big factor. Mm -hmm. And the person that hires you for a site-specific work trusts you to do a customization. They've they've entered into an agreement that right. you're going to do this, mm -hmm. and they and then you have to trust yourself to deliver it. It's interesting that it then gets put on a time clock. Like it's interesting oh, to it's me that they crazy. go, okay, well, in ten days, two weeks, get out of yeah. here. You know, like the trust <laughs> stops when the yeah. clock stops. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's like I'm so committed to making it it happen that. I will use whatever time I have. I did a project in UAE at the Sharjah Art Museum. And I remember one of the coordinators for the museum, she comes over to me and she's like, we're all going to go on a boat ride, the people from the museum. And I was like, I was so stressed out because I was like, I can't leave. Like I'm in the middle of doing this massive installation for this museum. Like I, but for me, once I'm in that space where I'm building, I do have criteria though, moving in. Like when I go into a museum and I'm asked to do a project, like they know they're not supposed to say like, oh, we thought it would be really cool if you did it over here. Like I need to walk into a space and see it as a blank canvas, which means like, don't put a dirty mark on the canvas <laughs> because then all I'm going to do is look at that mark. You don't, you don't need a voice vote from the UN. <laughs> I'm so grateful because I know so many remarkably talented people that haven't been given the opportunity and trust that I have been given in my career. And so the idea that I can walk into a space and that the trust is mutual, I trust that they will give me the space that I need and that they trust me to produce something. So what they're doing is we trust your imagination and your ability to make that happen. And that is the best part of all of this. And I think the fact is you've earned it. Oh, thanks. Nobody gives you that unless they've seen something or experienced something or been impacted by seeing your work somewhere else. I know that you're in 50 plus galleries around the, the country. <laughs> is there a gallery that you are a or a building that is on your wish list to do something for? I want to wrap the Eiffel Tower in an organic form. Awesome. Yeah, so, oh, that'll come true. Uh, yeah. you're, you're young enough for that to be possible. The dialogue between these lithotropes, and that's what I call the outdoor pieces, that and architecture and our modern topology, like any time that I can have a distinct and unique building to grow on, I want to do it. <laughs> okay. And I also believe that you have a aspiration to expand your design work to actually make the buildings themselves. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that for me, architectural permanent structures are a part of my future. I think that's one of the things that the temporary work is very beautiful and it, the temporal quality of fleeting moments, but the child of a builder, seeing the utility of a space that can be used as an actual living environment, like for me, that that 
is something that I'm really interested in in the future. I want a fusion to the coalesce of those moments. And I think that it'll happen when the time is right for it. And as we start to wake up after COVID and everything, I can already feel the hustle returning. I know a lot of creative people spent the last two years isolated and wondering, like, what are we doing this for? What is this? But I believe that, like, we all have to continue expressing ourselves and being curious and being creative because that's the way that we move forward into better places in this world. I firmly believe that the pause makes you reinvest in your conviction. Absolutely. What is your purpose? What is your passion? What is it you have to say? Because it is frustrating not to be able to do that, not to have an audience not to have a community, mm -hmm. not to have an experience where people respond to your work. Yeah. And it did light a fire under songwriters I knew and authors whose books are now coming out that they have written since the stop. It's really make them not take their work for granted. I really wish for you the advancement to moving towards the building and particularly the hybrid fashion because the work you discussed is temporal is reflective of a human life. People say, why do you put all that time in? Well, that's all we are. We're just a thing <laughs> that only exists for a certain amount of time and then goes away, right. right? Yeah, yeah. But if you can make a, I'll call it a hardscape, if you can make a piece of architecture that is the gateway to more temporal artists being able to put works in there that come and go, you kind of have the best of both worlds at that point. Right. And you can design that piece of architecture yeah. to artistically invite that, to be different, to not have so many square edges or not to have a specific indoor-outdoor <laughs> thing that we've come to understand a mall has. Like, let's avoid that fluorescent non-invitation to create, an invitation to consumerism. I'm excited to see what's in your future with regard to that. And I think that this is a chapter that's that you're seeing is necessary, especially as you've been such a good collaborator with so many places to draw attraction to existing buildings and spaces. Exactly. Yeah. It's graduation day for you. Oh, oh, here we go. <laughs> I'm excited. Let me design a bridge. The forms that, that come out of me, you know, this kind of like, so when I was a, a, a young child, I was fascinated with birds and even in my studio now, there are all these pictures of exotic birds everywhere. And like the color relationships. So earlier we were talking a little bit about like what the surfaces look like. Um, and I just wanted to kind of like bring back that like the color relationships that exist in nature are things that I'm drawing my inspiration from that for the surface of the installations. And it becomes very much like candy in the fact that like color is seductive. Like it's supposed to be that way. Like flowers draw you in. But underneath that, the bones of what I'm working on, the architectural bone bones, it is the, the relationship of the straight line to the curved edge and what that looks like. The tension of a line just before it turns. Those are the soft and hard curves that happen in um, the natural world that we live in. And growing buildings with that kind of emphasis on that, that formal approach is definitely something that I see in the future. Just need the time to do it. I need time. Do you have any internal conflict with working sometimes? You talk about the natural world and all of that you're emulating. And then working sometimes, even though you're repurposing the plastics and yeah. chicken wires being used and all of that, I know that this stuff doesn't stay forever, so you're able to repurpose it. But do you ever have an internal conflict of using those non-organic materials? Oh, yeah. It's a part of the ongoing internal dialogue for me. I don't like the fact that that's the material that I touch that I'm using to make these. But I also think that for me, the relationship that somebody walks into the space and they encounter first the form and then they encounter the texture and then they encounter the reality of the material and every level of understanding for them is another step closer to their actual experience with their world. And that's consumer culture, commercial products. And for me, like, 
okay, well, I want to get closer to people's everyday experience. I just don't want, no matter what, if you walk into an environment where there's something happening that is large enough to activate you, to get you to look up, to get you to look through something, that if you don't understand it, by the time you get to the third phase, which is what is this made of, that you know what that material is. You have a relationship with that. You, it's, you know, so there's something about the everyday material that is important to reaching people on a personal level. I do think there's a big aha there. I had to look closely at you with a work in action on your Instagram to see how the chicken wire was the armature underneath and how it seemed time consuming and took a lot of patience. And, and yet when you look at it finished and you see it bursting out, this sort of explosive sculpture that's robust, <laughs> eye-popping appeal, it lures you in <laughs> to want to get closer to it. Right. And to, uh, you know, I, I did want to like yeah. feel it in some ways. I wanted to kind of get cl closer to put my hands on it. And you have to be careful. I mean, like I did an installation for the Flaming Lips and it was for an event that they had and people were touching the installation. <laughs> so you get the sense that like that thing that I was talking about with the technological glaucoma, that's where we start to lose our peripheral vision and it comes down. And I mean, I did an interview with NPR with Erica Funke like six years ago or something. And we did we had a conversation about the field and what our relationship with the field, walking into a landscape and understanding what we see compared to the narrow understanding that we have now. So we walk into a space and our expanded experience is just much more narrow. But another part of that is not just the visual, but it's the sensory deprivation, the textural, the tactile. And the texture of the installation, it's like flowers and plants and shrubs and leaves and grass. It's like all this textural living stuff that isn't a part of the desk that I sit at or the door handle that I walk, like the door that I walk through. Like, so it, it is very much like awakening. Yeah. It's like, what is this texture? Yeah, right. Because your desk was a tree, but we don't think of it as a tree. No. It's a tree that got turned into a box. It's disheartening to know that we have advanced so much that we literally have to be handheld back to nature and back to those organic shapes and vibes and feelings. And I think it right. isn't just architecture. It isn't just education. It's the fact that everything mm -hmm. has, has become binary, politically, religiously, financially. Right. Everything is yeah. all or nothing. And therefore... Those horse blinders you talk about that are on us, we're so myopically focused on things that it's sort of like, oh, I have to have this to get that. And it's there's so much more nuance in the world. I love that. Yeah. If you allow yourself to have an escape plan on any given day. Which is, <laughs> right. And you don't have to tell anybody else about it. You can go to a museum. You can go on a nature walk. You can go, you know, jump in a cold lake. Yeah. But- I think we have to be much more intentional about it because otherwise you go from your bed to your phone, to your car, to the restaurant, to the something, and yeah. then you do that 30 days in a row and you're into the next month. Yeah, I mean, we lose a sense of fulfilling technology in itself. Like I'm not a Luddite because I do use technology a lot. You know, I'm very much tied into social media and reaching people digitally through my work because after the experience is over, the piece is documented and it does live on and more people have access to it. It's different. It's just the binary version. It will never be the same as what it is to experience, but it is an awakening moment even at a minuscule level. But that binary element that you're talking about, it's like categories. It's like we need the words to know where, we need the category to understand the way that we're gonna understand the word, like what the context is. But that category ends up simplifying that word to the point that we don't understand it as a multi-dimensional thing. Yeah, it's like the word awesome. It's sort of like, mm -hmm. let's not yeah. <laughs> use that for a side salad. 
Yeah, right. I want for people to be present in their lives. But I mean, I want this for people because again, from my own experience, the addiction to the dopamine rush that you get tapped into your technology, there are other places to get that that is, I guess it's more closely tied to what we are as animals moving through a world that we're connected to, that we are not separate from this planet. We are a part of it. Uh, That's a fantastic reminder. I'm so grateful that you remind us to be alive through your work, through your philosophy. It's a real invitation to living life thoroughly. Uh, I read a quote this morning. Keith Haring said, art should be something that liberates your soul, provokes the imagination, and encourages people to go further. And I think you emulate that in your philosophy and in your installations and encouraging people to be part of a the immersive experience of life itself. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure in all the ways. You're so cool. Cheers. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe, and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative, under the skilled producership of Amanda Rosenberg, with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Casey Franco, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's, or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's .fun because .com is just too .common. And .fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty.